The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of God for the people of God. People say, oh, you feel deprived and you weren't nurtured. I say that's true. And maybe the nurturing comes from the respect and love of strangers. To feel embraced and loved by an audience, it's insatiable. I wish I could get over it, but I can't. This is Sylvester Stallone talking about his story. His story of abandonment and abuse from his childhood in his recent documentary, Sly. Stallone, because of his story, is desperately searching for the same things we're all looking for, affirmation and affection, achievement and accolades. And Stallone goes on to say, once you get your dream or get to your dream, you realize that wasn't my dream. It hasn't turned out the way I thought. It also comes with a storm front that you're constantly battling because you're like, oh snap. I thought once I made it to the top of the mountain, it was all blue skies. It's not, it's pretty lonely. Sometimes climbing to the top of the mountain is not all it's cracked up to be. And that leaves a hole. And that hole is never filled. One thing that fascinates me about Stallone is that he understands at some level how his story has shaped him. His motivations, his desires have all been formed by his story for better or for worse. See, each of us has a story and each of us is still writing our story. 
And one of the problems of the individualistic culture that we live in is that you're told you can write whatever story you want on your own terms. But philosophers and sociologists are beginning to see the pitfalls of this modern experiment. French sociologist Elaine Ehrenberg says in The Weariness of Self, the self-creating individual turns out to be fragile and weary of his or her sovereignty. Having to create your own story and identity is exhausting. Matthew B. Crawford, PhD in political philosophy from the University of Chicago, says this, Once upon a time, our problem was guilt. The feeling that you have made a mistake with reference to something forbidden. This was felt as a stain on one's character. Today, the question that hovers over your character is no longer of that of how good you are, but of how capable you are. And with this shift comes a new pathology. The affliction of guilt has given way to weariness. Weariness with the vague and unending project of having to become one's fullest self. We call this depression. See, in every good movie, there are two story arcs. The individual character, the hero, and the individual hero getting caught up in joining some larger story. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Dune, Hunger Games, all have this motif. An individual getting caught up in something bigger. And this is because there's something in each of us that longs to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. But we live in this moment between these two vortexes, pulling us in opposite directions. On one hand, you have individualism. Live for yourself, be true to yourself, make a name for yourself. And on the other hand, this longing, this longing to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And I want to convince you this morning that it is only in the gospel story, God's story of good news, that both of these longings are fulfilled. In a world full of competing stories on what it means to live the good life, we need to know what it means to live in the real story, the story behind all the other stories. Because each of us has a story, and each of us is still writing a story. And for many of you, you have been caught up in the Jesus story. But like what we've talked about before, Christians have spiritual amnesia. It can be easy to forget the true story and settle for lesser stories. And for some of us, you're not sure about the Jesus story. And wherever you find yourself, thank you for being here this morning. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Cormdale. The question I want each of us to wrestle with this morning is this. Whose story are you living in? Your own? The culture's? God's? Because my hunch is that it's probably some mix of all of those. As one pastor in the UK, Pete Hughes, puts it, the story you live in is the story you live out. And this is the big idea for this morning. The story you live in is the story you live out. And from Ephesians 3, I want to talk to you about this in three chapters. Your story, God's story, and then live in God's story. So first, your story. For this reason, I, Paul, verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Let's pause right there. See, you could cut verses 2 through 13 out, and the whole letter, the flow of the letter, would still work. 
The passage could read, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then skip to verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, and then continue with what's going to be a prayer. See, scholars call verses 2 through 13 Paul's autobiographical tangent. But even the tangents in Scripture are intentional. So what is Paul doing in this tangent? And what we're going to see is that Paul knows his own story, he knows God's story, and he knows how to live in God's story. Do you? I mean, a lot of people who don't know their story. A lot of people don't know how their past and the events of their past are shaping them who they are today. John Calvin says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of self. To be fully formed in the way of Jesus, we need both. Knowledge of self, our own story, and knowledge of God, his story. And this applies to each of us. So let me ask you again. Do you know how the formative moments in your life impact how you live today? For good or for ill? Because remember, the story you live in is the story you live out. So let's think about Paul's story for a moment. Take a look at what he says about himself in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. Paul says that he's the very least of the saints. Why would he say this? Well, in Paul's story, he was, yes, raised in a highly religious environment, and he persecuted. He murdered people in the church. He hated God's people. Yet God redeemed his story. See, the redemption of Jesus is so good. Jesus describes it as being born again, like being a new creation, like having a whole new life burst into the middle of this current one. Daniel Pink, in his book, The Power of Regret, tells the story of Alfred Nobel. In April 1888, Alfred Nobel woke up, opened a newspaper, and found out that he died. What had happened was that his older brother Ludwig Nobel had died, and people had mistaken him for his brother. So they printed the obituary of Alfred. And in many ways, this obituary was a gift. Alfred got this strange opportunity to see his legacy in print, and he did not like what he read. The merchant of death is dead. Alfred was condemned for inventing dynamite and other explosives that fueled worldwide destruction. And the obituary portrayed him as a money-hungry man accumulating a fortune at the expense of others. The obituary criticized him for his greed and celebrated him for his death. And Alfred was overcome with regret. And instead of pushing it off and pretending like it wasn't a big deal and sulking and going into depression, he confronted that grief or that regret head on. And he used it in in this sense of like, I don't want to live this kind of life. I want my life to be about something different. And he was never the same from that moment forward. He died eight years later, but this time the obituary was different. He was remembered for something else. They weren't celebrating his death. They were honoring him. He wasn't known as the merchant of death, but as a philanthropist. And if you don't know the story, Nobel gave over 90% of his wealth to now a famous series of prizes, 
awarded to people benefiting humanity in physics and chemistry and medicine and literature and peace. He went from being the doctor of death to the founder of the Nobel Prize. Chances are when you hear the word Nobel, you don't think death, you think peace and life. And Nobel got this gift of having his life flash before him and then the chance to live it again. And I tell you that story because in the mercy and grace of God, your life can be a new story. When you become a Christian, the Bible describes that as being born again, or in many places, receiving new life. And God delights to give new life, a new story, to those who don't deserve it. See, many of you carry regret in your story. Many of you have unmet longings. Many of you walk into this room filled with shame and regret over your story. And you need to know that in Christ, your story can be redeemed. And maybe what the Spirit wants this morning is for you to get right with God and get rid of regret. Because the Spirit of God does not want you to live with regret. By God's grace, Paul's story was redeemed as he encountered God's story, and the same can be true of you. Before Paul encountered Jesus, he was a murderer of the church. In fact, that's exactly how he describes himself in Philippians 3, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. But then just a few lines later, Paul's going to say this, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And do you want to know what's interesting? The word for press on and the word for persecutor are the same word in Paul's language. Why is this important? Because when Paul was given new life, his zeal and his passion and the angst that drove Paul to persecute has been transformed. The worst parts of Paul's dark story are redeemed in the presence of God's story. And the same can be true for you. And I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Are you willing to believe that the image of God in you is more original than your sin. When your story encounters God's story, transformation happens. Maybe better said, when God's story invades your story, transformation happens. See, it's not enough just to have an awareness of how your own story has shaped you. Modern therapy can give you that. What you need is a story bigger than yourself, God's story, to invade your story. And this leads to the second chapter, God's story. Now, let's talk about the Bible for a second. Every single one of you has a relationship with the Bible. That relationship might be good. That relationship might be bad. But every single one of us has some relationship with the Bible. The Bible is the most influential book and yet can be incredibly confusing. And without even knowing it, we often approach the Bible with the story of the glasses of individualism. We come to the Bible looking for answers to our questions for our own individual lives. And in some ways, this is a good impulse. The impulse that says that the Bible is a source of truth and I need truth from outside of myself to live rightly, that's a great impulse. But what ends up happening is that we subconsciously come to the Bible the same way we come to Google or Siri. Hey, what does the Bible say about X for my life? 
And we treat the Bible like an encyclopedia of truth to be harvested for my own individual life. But the Bible begins with these words, in the beginning God. And if you flip to the last chapter of the Bible, it ends with, and they will reign forever and ever. In the beginning, forever and ever. Now I am sure that there is no dictionary nor encyclopedia that begins with in the beginning and ends with forever and ever. This is because the Bible is telling an epic story. And one of the ways that we know, is, that, we know that Paul is tapping into the epic story of God is by his use of the word mystery. How the mystery, verse three, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What does Paul mean when he says mystery? See, in English, mystery conjures up all these ideas of something secretive or something unknown, but that's not what Paul means by the word mystery. For Paul, the word mystery means something that, yes, once was hidden, but now is revealed. So a biblical mystery is not a secret. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project defines mystery as the open secret. It's open. It's known. But what is the open secret? Well, this gets at understanding the Bible as a story and not as an encyclopedia of truth. Yet after the snake and sin ruined the beginning of the story, God promises to rescue and renew all of his creation. He chooses Abraham, who will eventually become the family of Israel. And through Abraham, God promises to bring blessing to all the nations. So from the very beginning of the story, God has always been after redeeming and rescuing people from all over the earth. And at the same time, Israel was God's special and chosen people. You read the Old Testament and it's clear, God has a special love for his people. And so you have this tension throughout the Old Testament. God's special love for his people Israel and God's promise to bring blessing to all the nations. So how will God redeem and rescue his people and bring blessing to all the nations of the world? See, Paul goes at great lengths to demonstrate how Jesus is the answer to that question. This mystery, verse 5, was not made known to the sons of men, as in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Back in the first half of chapter 2, Paul gave three descriptions of what it means to be saved. Made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. And this with Christ language is all about union with Christ. Then in the latter half of Ephesians 2, Paul gives another triplet of verbs to describe what it means to be united with one another. Paul says that Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens, verse 19, joined together, verse 21, and built together, verse 22. And all three of those words in Paul's Greek tongue begin with the prefix with. Literally, Jews and Gentiles are with citizens together, with joined together, with built together. 
terrible English, I know. But what the Spirit is saying in boldface and italics is this. Our union with Christ establishes our unity with one another. They go together. And in our passage today, we see a similar trifecta. In verse 6, the Greek words fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise all have with in front of them. With heirs, with members, with partakers of the promise. So again, our union with Christ, made alive with, raised up with, seated with Christ from chapter two is the grounds and the basis for our unity with one another. You can't have one without the other. And this, this is the open secret. This is the open secret now revealed that because of the coming of Christ and because of union with him, anyone can get in on God's story. Jews and Gentiles are brought into the story of God through union with Christ. And so no matter one's experience, no matter one's background, no matter one's social location, no matter one's sin or shame, anyone can get in on God's story through union with him and with one another. Friends, the story you live in will be the story you live out. Jesus is bringing together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to join him in his renewal of the whole world. Because there is coming a day, one day, that there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain, no more death. And every single last tear will be personally wiped away by God himself. Everything sad will become untrue. God's story is nothing short of every square inch being redeemed and made new in Christ. And anyone, anyone can get in on this. Which leads to chapter three. Live in God's story. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden from the ages in God who created all things. The reason we live for our own stories is because we don't fully believe the end of verse 8. We don't fully believe that there are unsearchable riches in Christ. Literally, this can be translated, the riches which cannot be tracked. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's not that God has an abundance of riches for his people. He does. It's that God's riches are so vast, so abundant, so magnificent, that there's not even a remotely good way to begin to even track them. And why does this matter? Well, we sin because we end up living into and believing the stories of our past or modern culture and believe that those stories are more fulfilling, more enriching, more satisfying than the story of Christ. The lie that undid paradise in Genesis 3 was there's a better, more enriching story on offer. Did God really say? In other words, God's holding out on you. Your life will be more enriching if you go your own way. 
And as Eve scrolls through this feed from the snake, it leads to disaster. It leads to shame, the Genesis text says. And humanity has been scrolling through the feed of competing stories since the Garden of Eden that only lead to shame and sin. And this ancient lie of the serpent gets played out in thousands of ways, even today. My story would be more enriching if... I'm talking to you about how you wish your career would be different. How it's gotten to the point where it just consumes you. I'm talking to you about the regret you carry from that past relationship or the regret from that one night of college that you just can't get over. I'm talking to you how, about how you think that person or that family, they have it all put together. But you, your family, you're just a train wreck. And so you're racked with guilt in comparison. I'm talking to you about how you wish you were in the next stage of life because then, then I would be happy. Because remember, the story you live in will be the story you live out. See, when I say Christ has unsearchable, when the scriptures say Christ has unsearchable riches, I don't mean your life will be easy or stress-free. See, let me point out the obvious. Paul is in prison. He says so twice, once at the beginning and once at the end of this passage. Now, we might not be in prison for preaching the gospel, but we need to be reminded that when God's story invades our story, life doesn't magically turn to bliss. When God's story collides with our story, things don't stay the same and things get difficult. Being restoried by God's story is often slow, unpredictable, and many times painful. And intuitively, we know that. And that's why some of us are hesitant to allow the Spirit of God to do the deep healing work in our stories. Or you want to experience healing in your story, but the work has been long and painful. It's been heartbreaking. And for some of you who have yet to follow Jesus, you're hesitant, not primarily because of some intellectual doubts, maybe, but because of what following Jesus will mean for your desires and your comforts that you're used to from your story. To join in God's story of redemption in the deepest places within me means that something is going to change. But change is scary. Change is full of unknowns. Change means I lose control. Change means that something I'm used to needs to die in order for something new and fresh to flourish and live. It's why I find myself hesitant to engage fully with the person sitting in front of me. It's why I find myself cautious with people. It's why I find myself weary of investing in new friendships. Because like the Israelites in the wilderness, we all sometimes wonder, maybe it was better in Egypt. Because you live with some fear of your own transformation. Because you're used to the version of you that you live with, the types of desires you prefer, the types of coping mechanisms that make life bearable for you. And in some ways, those things have become more comfortable. 
But if I give Jesus all of me, if I give Jesus all of my story, access to all of who I am, I know that there will be healing and there will be difficulty too. There will be ups and downs. There were on the pages of scripture and so it will be in our lives. It will mean giving up some comforts. It will mean giving up on preferences. It will mean giving up on some ways that have brought us a sense of security so sometimes it feels safer to just stick with what I'm used to. But that's a lie. You are scrolling through the feed of the snake. Because deep down, you know that that will not satisfy long term. God's word is telling you, God's word is promising you that Christ's riches are unsearchable. The identity, the calling, the story that God is writing is far more enriching than anything else on offer. And that's why Paul can say in this passage, I know that I'm in prison. I know that I'm suffering. I know that when God's story invaded my story, things weren't always easy. But it's worth it. Why? And Paul says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Christian, you have access to the presence of God. The only way you can live life and life to the full is because of God's presence. And it's only because of Christ that you have access to the presence of God. At the center and foundation of the mystery of the gospel is the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the only human being who fully and completely lived in the story of God. He's the only one who lived the story-formed kind of life that God intended each of us to live, yet we perpetually fail to live. And Jesus fulfills God's story on our behalf and dies on our behalf. And on the cross, he absorbs the collective weight of all the individualistic, self-destructive choices we make that run counter to God's story. But the resurrection of Jesus becomes the moment in the story right here in this broken world where we see what the story of God is all about. It's not the story of weary individualism. It's not the story where shame and sin win. No, it's the story we're at the very center of it. The creator of the universe gives of his very self and absorbs our stories of shame and sin to bring healing and transformation out the other side. That God's commitment to humanity is so strong that he has the power in Jesus to reverse our stories of regret and shame and sin into stories of new life. And in doing so, he is present with us. He gives us his abiding presence to continue the journey. See, friends, it's possible to be functionally unaware of that which you have access to. You're stuck not because you don't have the resources you need, but because you're not relying on the resource you already have. God's presence, God's spirit and the Spirit of God is working to bring about renewal and restoration. So why wouldn't you take advantage of the access that you have in Christ? The text is saying you have access. See, each one of us, 
is saturated in the presence of someone or something. Each one of us is abiding in someone or something. We might not call it abiding. We might call it scrolling. But it's abiding all the same. And some of you are abiding more in the story of your past than in the story that God is writing, than rather abiding in the presence of God. And you will only be able to live in the story of God if you're relying on the presence of God, because the story you live in will be the story you live out. And do you know what you're going to find as you pursue God's presence? That God has already been pursuing you. God's after you. The Spirit of God is at work. His goodness and grace is chasing you down. Yes, you. You who are unsure about Jesus. Yes, you. You who have been following Jesus for years. God's grace is chasing you. Jesus is relentless. He's coming after you. He's coming after you to do what? to restory your story and his story of redemption. His story of grace is melting your story of self. And to end where we began this whole thing, let me ask one more time. Whose story are you living in? Because the story you live in will be the story you live out. So Father, we ask. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would, you would reveal in each of us the ways that we're tempted and the ways that we settle for different stories, for different identities, for different ways of living in your world. God, help us to see with more clarity and with more insight, the beauty of your story. God, would you captivate our minds and our imaginations that we might more fully see the beauty of you in that spirit you would come and that you would bring renewal and hope to each person in this room. God, we pray for more of your spirit to bring to light the, the goodness of who you are and what you're up to in the world. So God, help us to not settle but help us to live more fully into your gospel story. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.